Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to My Millennial Property. You are here with Emily Wallace and John Pigeon, as we are every week. And this week, we are talking all things apartment. The biggest question we get is, should I buy one? What are the pros and cons? What makes a good apartment? And let's be honest, the entry level to the Australian property market for many people does equal an apartment purchase. Also, a lot of people wonder if they should invest in apartments for cash flow versus long-term growth. So we're really going to unpack everything today, both from the personal experience of John owning an apartment, my experience in living in so many apartments, and then talking about some practical tips on how you can establish a great apartment versus a good apartment. Does that sound good, John? That sounds great, Emily. I can't wait to thrash this out in detail. Let's do it. Let's get into it. So, John, I must admit, when you told me that you own an apartment, I was a little bit surprised in some regards, but then also curious. So maybe let's start there. John, the apartment owner, how did this... Let's go there. How did this even happen? How did it happen? Well, I suppose before I go into this personally, from a mm. personal level, it's an interesting time in the market, isn't it, where housing growth has been so supreme over the last five years in most areas, if not all areas, and to the point where apartments are now back on people's lips if they ever left them because of that affordability um, and, and just knowing that there's quite a lifestyle benefit to living in apartments. So it, it's really an interesting time in the markets and uh, and we want to unpack obviously the whole um, supply and demand issue of, of buying property in general as well. Um, but I suppose from a personal level, it's probably been 10 years now um, since I bought this apartment off the plan in Brisbane. Now, the growth of the property hasn't been so great. And I can, if I unpack that, I can, I can answer why. And I don't want to, by telling this story, I don't want to put people off apartments or investing in apartments or living in an apartment because you, Emily, you've lived in multiple apartments over your journey as a as a rent vester, and 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 I think that they definitely have their place. And um, we look at overseas countries and uh, or capital cities or even larger cities, and that's actually the norm, isn't it? They like places like Singapore and Hong Kong, Beijing, Shanghai. Like it's just that's what they people do. They they squeeze into these small apartments or studios and and live their life, and that's what they're used to because of the type of lifestyle they want to live, but also the, I suppose, the cost of, uh, of getting into something greater. Now, why did I go into it 10 years ago? Well, the, the numbers that were presented to me from a supply and demand point of view, um, there was a lot of, there was a, a major gap between Sydney and Brisbane housing prices. And generally what happens with, with um, 
with that is that Brisbane gradually catches back up to Sydney's already seen growth. And so I thought, okay, the supply and demand was was uh, in check. The vacancy rates were down around that sort of 1% and, uh, and there didn't seem to be a lot of new developments on the horizon because that's always a concern, right, is, um, is a development coming on which, uh, which can affect the, the supply being out of kilter of the demand that people are wanting to, to buy these um, types of assets. So off I go and had some... I suppose, spare change at the time. Uh, and the the appeal of paying for it, knowing that I had two years before I had to, um, I suppose, come up with the full amount and, and get lending, um, appealed to me at the time. So uh, we were in for a reasonable price and fast forward probably four years, there was a, a massive spike in supply, which affects uh, rentals. Uh, it increases vacancy rates. It uh, it affects resale because you can you can buy something brand new instead of something four or five years old for the same price as what we paid for it. And all in all, we basically have to. You've got two choices: you can ride the wave and and just continue to hold it, or you sell it at what you paid for it or what's basically going to be a loss, right? So um, that was my introduction to investing, I suppose. But And for the listeners, um, what what was the configuration of the apartment? Like bed, bath, car, what sort of apartment was it? What size? No one's perfect, Emily. And <laughs> if I had my time again... <laughs> That's always a good opener to the question. <laughs> <laughs> if I had my time again, I would not have bought a one-bedroom apartment, which was 56 square, I think. Now, I, I knew that less than 50 square are absolute no-goes, that the banks don't like them, that they're just, you can't swing a cat or a dog or any other animal and and they just never grow in value, so to speak. So yeah, it was one bedroom. As I said, the price point was perfect for me at the time to put down that deposit and get some lending on that and uh, away we went. But um, yeah, hindsight has the suburb and the building itself performed well. The larger internal size departments absolutely have, and that's where the mistake was made, okay? The supply and demand didn't help five years later, uh, but commonly enough, your apartments that are 90, 100 square, 120 square, the, the, the three-bedroom penthouse at the top, they're all going along fine because there's less of them around and more do- desirability. Like, 10 years ago, me compared to 10 years ago, ten years today is a very different uh, strategic thinker in terms of what works and what doesn't work in real estate. You just simply need to understand that, or for me anyway, it's like, well, if I rent, if I try and rent a one, one bedroom apartment, it's only eligible for one person. Um, whereas if I've got a two bedroom or a three bedroom, it opens it up to me and a friend. It opens it up to me and I can work from home as well in the other bedroom. It's um, if I go to three bedroom, all of a sudden I can have maybe two kids. There can be a small family there. So there's much more opportunity for, for appeal to rent, but then obviously resale for someone to have as their owner occupier. And so you still have that apartment today? I'm still kicking the can down the road. Uh, <laughs> so and again, I'm in a fortunate position where it, it doesn't define me and it, it never was going to define me. And it was like, okay, I can see 
how this could work. It hasn't worked out to what I would like to. And it's obviously worth more than uh, what I paid for it, but not to the level of, of other investments. So yeah, still got it. And and as we'll, we'll talk about the pros and cons as we go, but the, the big positive with smaller apartments like that is their rental yield. So it's basically wiping its own face in terms of cash flow. I love that expression, wiping its own face. I thought that was going to be something different for a second. Um, so in terms of... <laughs> I wanted to do something different with it, but yeah. <laughs> so we, when will we sell it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's not a priority at the minute. And just from an owner in an apartment complex, how has your experience been in dealing with an owner's corporation or a body corporate? Has it been pretty straightforward, paying your fees every quarter, any maintenance that's been out of whack or? Yeah. And, and it hasn't been a horror story by any means in terms of there's an on-site uh, property manager, so to speak. Um, they look after the whole complex for us, basically manage everything on our behalf. And, and it's pretty straightforward and simple. Um, one thing I, I thought we did do well was did a lot of due diligence around the developer and the builder. And, and fortunate enough that, that it's a reasonably good quality apartment block, whereas others around it are far inferior and far cheaper and, and, and less desirable. So that, that's, that needs to make up a lot of people's research is uh, who's actually building it and what developments have they built before and go and check them out. Yeah, for sure. A huge part in due diligence to make sure there's track record there. And yeah, and I think, you know, for a lot of people, ideally buying off the plan, you know, towards the completion stage is always good. I think the great developers and the, the great, you know, property companies that do these apartment blocks, and I've been to presentations from them. There's one in particular who's building a really big one in the, on the Gold Coast at the moment. And it's the marketing of the off the plan sales mm. that they just get so right. And you're just like, like yes. I went to this presentation as a property professional and I nearly got sucked into buying a one bedroom apartment. Really? I was like, what is going on? It was just so good. Yeah. I was like, I need to be part of that. So just yeah. be mindful. They're selling you the dream from the outset that you don't always get delivered the dream. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So that, that's my story. And, and I suppose wanted to lead in with that because it just, puts it in perspective for, for people not to go in with eyes shut and, and just to know what to look out for and what's going to resale well for the long term. Because like people come to me and say, oh, if I don't make any money, it's it's been a good experience. Well, that's just a cover up for saying you, you didn't make a good investment choice, right? And uh, I'm the first to say that this has been one of those. And uh, so I think going forward, we want to look at what does make a good investment in this apartment space? And, and Emily, you have, as I said before, lived in many different apartment blocks. So maybe start with what you would like to see as a tenant. Yeah, great question. And for context, I've lived in very old apartments, almost brand near new. Actually, I lived in one that I was the first person living in. It was brand new. The one I'm in now is four right. years old. Like I love apartments. And the reason I love them is because the access to lifestyle and amenity. So I think that's a key point. No one wants to be living in something that's small and also sacrificing location. I think if you're buying an apartment as an investor or as an owner, you want to balance it with access being a real focal point. 
because it's always the argument people say, do I buy an apartment close to the city or a house on land? Well, you don't want to be in remote areas living in an apartment most likely. So that's important. It's also the layout of the apartment to have some good division. You know, in a house, you get really good division of usually an open plan living zone at the rear and, you know, the bedrooms down the hallway. It's very hard to establish that in an apartment because you're working with smaller space. So I think something that has a really clear cut home-like floor plan is actually a request we get a lot from a lot of first home buyers when they come to buy an apartment. So that's really important and the aspect of the apartment, natural light, as you would with a house as well. But particularly um, when you might be buying into an area that has apartment block after apartment block, you don't want to be just always looking into someone else's apartment block. You want some greenery and some aspect and an outlook. Yeah, and that, that's a tricky one, isn't it? And and I've seen that evolve in Brisbane and in a lot of other capital cities is when you first, and especially when you're the first in there or, or you're a pioneer in that region for, for apartments or another level, say you've, the, the, the blocks in the area might be 12 storey and all of a sudden you're the first to put up a 15 storey and you're on the 14th level and then all of a sudden conditions change and, and council requirements change. Um, uh, change and all of a sudden you're allowed 20 stories. So guess what? That beautiful view you had over the ocean is now gone because there's uh, there's been one built in front of it. So that can very much change, can't it? Yeah, for sure. And just on the note of that, you're kind of leading to a good point about the height of the apartment box. I, mm. you know, as a tenant and as a you know, prospective owner of an apartment, I would like to limit the number of floors, but also the number of apartments in the block. It means you know who your neighbours are. It's not a sense of everyone coming and going all the time. If the lift breaks down and you're on level seven, like not ideal to walk seven flights, but if it's only three storeys high, you can probably deal with it. So just those those little things that make sense probably to you and I, but for general public thinking about buying, um, you do need to think about those parameters that make a great apartment complex as well as the actual apartment mm. itself. Yeah. So let, let's go there for a minute. Like you, you look at things like, I know when I go away and, and for, for work and I might spend one or two nights away and, and you, you've got places with lifts and gyms and swimming pools and saunas and all the bells and whistles. You've got a nice restaurant down below and to, to the to the naked eye, that all looks extremely attractive to live in or to rent or to go and visit, right? But is it good from an investment point of view? So it's interesting. I think a lot of people as a tenant would love to be in a block that has the amenity because when you think about rent, you also think about your other outgoings and maybe you could cut down your gym membership and pay more in rent and you've got a gym on site. The reality of how much people actually use the amenities, and I know this from walking through so many and walking in to see the gym and no one's there, I think you need to be realistic. Is it actually an attraction? And so therefore, I would be more inclined to be a tenant who might use those facilities than an owner who has to, has to pay for those facilities in body corporate fees and the maintenance of them. That's just my personal view. I, I'm not sure that I'd want to be an owner-occupier paying for amenity that I'm unlikely to use. Yeah, so for those who are new to the show or just new to listening to stuff about property investing, body corporate fees, what's good, bad and otherwise and what does it include and why do we have to pay it? In its simplest form, the body corporate, also referred to as the owner's corp, um, 
basically the company that manages all the common areas. So when you buy into an apartment block, you buy your apartment, you're responsible for your apartment. The hallways, the lifts, the car parking area, the driveway, all these common property is managed by a body corporate and you pay a fee that's uh, an annual fee paid quarterly most, most of the time to this company to manage it. In terms of benchmark for the actual fees of what you should expect to pay, generally speaking, those 70s, 80s brick bills that just have a common driveway, you're usually paying for driveway insurance, public liability and the uh, building insurance of the of the full building. And it's usually anywhere from 1500 to 2000 a year per unit. Mm. Um, now, keep in mind your lot liability is based on how big your lot is. So, for example, a one-bedroom apartment would typically pay less body corporate fees than a three-bedroom apartment in the same building. When you're looking into amenity, gosh, anything from 5,000. I've seen there's one building and this is out of the ordinary, but I'm just going to say it for the extremity of of how far it is. There's one building in St Kilda in Melbourne that the two bedroom apartment body corporate fees are $20,000 per year. Now the amenities are insane. Don't get me wrong. I've walked through the complex. The amenities are out of this world, but it's $20,000 a year for the body corporate fees. So yes. Yeah. Wow, that is amazing. I've never heard that high. I'll have to give you a tour of the block, John. Maybe we could do a video on it because it's actually very impressive. By the sounds of it, I'll, uh, I'll be scared of heights at the top. No, it's not even that high. It's not. It's, it, it's it? only like seven levels high, but it's all, they've all got um, water views of St Kilda Beach. Right. Mm. There you go. Mm. Mm. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, we're only touching the surface, but we need to take a break. We'll, uh, we'll come back and we'll expand on the pros and cons of should we buy an apartment. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. 
get that down to around two or three. But I think from from an owner's point of view, we also want to know that uh, there's the upkeep on it to make sure that it looks fresh and clean and modern and desirable too. So there's really that middle ground, isn't there? For sure. And those body corporate fees, you know, include things like the bin collection, the cleaning of the common areas, all those extra things that make the building present well and are well-maintained. One piece of advice I'd give straight off the bat when it comes to body corporate is be on the committee, be an active participant in decisions. They usually meet once a year, but obviously you email and call in between time. But if you want influence on how well the building's maintained, you could certainly uh, be an active committee member and help shape the way forward with that body corporate. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, And speaking of being on the body corporate committee, Generally, the tenants won't be on the the body corporate committee and owners that are interstate probably can't be bothered to be on on the the committee. But it's important to understand who else is in the complex. It's really important to understand how many owner occupiers actually own these different apartments and what's the ratio of of investors or renters in the in the apartment so it's sometimes hard to find the actual um, the actual breakdown of that but someone like core logic would most likely have majority of it summed up wouldn't they yes and also not as accurate as core logic but a good non-paid version would be domain building profile i actually don't use domain as my first pick when I'm searching properties, but for the building profiles on apartments, hot tip, um, just type in the address building profile and it'll pop up with a split of tenants versus owners. Yeah, that's great. And and a ratio, if, if anyone's wondering, the higher the better for owner-oc. Like owner-occupiers are going to look after it better. They're going to, they're going to probably hold it for longer. Investors are more not not emotional, like I'm just going to get rid of this property sort of thing. So yeah, you, you should have definitely f- less for lease signs out the front or for rent and you should have less for sale signs. Um, so because an investor might take a hit on a property and claim the loss forward, for example, um, so they're more likely to say, well, yeah, I'll, I'll Sell it for twenty grand less than I probably um, probably should have, but uh, that and that brings down the standard or the price, the new norm in that particular building, doesn't it? That's a really valid point. Uh, I think a trend that I'm noticing at the moment in newer apartment blocks, like ones that have just been built, is a really high number of first home buyers. It's almost like this community of you know mid twenties to mid thirties all buying into these uh, apartment blocks for lifestyle. And it's a great vibe and a great prospect for, you know, resale. Just keep in mind that even though you could buy in with a lot of first home buyers, over time, blocks do change. The nature of them changes. They might flip it to an investment. Just keep an eye on things. It's always good to know what's happening in the block and what things are selling for. Especially with first homeowner concessions being so attractive in the last few years, like you, you've got zero stamp duty. If you live in it for 12 months or six months, you you might even get a, a new builder's grant. Like you, there's all this money coming our way as first home buyers. They can easily flick it after 12 months and turn it into their investment. And that changes that ratio a lot, doesn't it? So we, we need to keep an eye on that long term as well. But from a by someone that's lived in the apartment as a tenant, What's the attractiveness for you? Why why would you go and live in an apartment as opposed to living, I don't know, 5K, 10K further out in a house, a shared house? 
Yeah, great question. I think the biggest thing is, well, for me, it's my own space. Like it's a smaller space, but it's my own space. It gives me the lifestyle and the access to being a centre point to great restaurants and transport and friends and parks for my dog, all those sorts of amenities that I really like. I think for people who generally rent apartments, nine times out of 10, the reason they do it is because their default is, well, I don't want, I don't want to own an apartment or I can't afford to own this particular apartment. When you factor in the mortgage repayments and the body corporate and all the outgoings, they've done the the numbers and it makes sense for them just to rent it, not to own it. And I've run the numbers on mine and it's exactly, that is the case. However, with a number of investors selling out of the market at the moment, and we're recording this in July of 2023, there's a lot of investors selling out who bought in in 2020, 2021, you know, quite a quick turnaround. For some pockets of Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, it actually makes more sense to own the apartment than to rent the apartment in some areas. Mm. And the thing with this is know your numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And I was talking to someone the other day where – their plan was was not to not to get married, not at this stage anyway. Um, definitely not to have any kids. So that type of lifestyle that you just referenced is really appealing for that type of person, isn't it? Buy their their own apartment, spend I don't know five six hundred k, which is a manageable mortgage for for a lot of people. Pay it down over the next ten or fifteen years. Uh, have shops, amenities, trams, trains, whatever it is that they desire close by within walking distance. You don't need a car even um, depending on your lifestyle. And uh, you, you can see yourself living there for the next 20 years. One of the biggest things when people go in to buy an apartment is the maintenance factor. Like with a house, with a yard, as much as that sounds great, particularly when you've got kids, I totally appreciate you want yard space for them to run around and things like that. But you also have to mow those lawns or if you don't want to do it, you've got to pay someone to do that. Gardening, upkeep, all those sorts of things. It, It does go into the mix. So I would say apartments offer a low maintenance lifestyle choice. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for the owner, Rock, it's if that's your type of lifestyle that you want to want to live, then it's a fantastic alternative to having a, a $1.5, million, $2 million mortgage uh, further out in the suburbs where you've got land, which ultimately probably over time does perform better from a growth point of view. But at the end of the day, you've got lifestyle, you've got uh, low, low maintenance, as you mentioned, Emily. From an investing point of view, the big one for me is is it brings yield, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, for sure. And is trying to balance that obviously with regardless of owner or investor buying into a good block and we can break down some of the things that make a great block. But yeah, you're so right. The yield and the demand. Tenants want to be like that's, you know, they're always in these spots that people want to live in. So it's very rare that you have apartments sitting vacant for a long period of time. I would argue that in some pockets of the major capital cities, houses actually sit vacant for longer. They're not as attractive. So, yeah, apartments are pretty good in that respect. Yeah, so one thing that you can do if you're listening to this thinking, yeah, I'm tossing up between one or the other, you can go on to somewhere like SQM Research and check the vacancy rates and you can actually look back as far as 20 years. So what that does... I should have done it, but um, we uh, <laughs> we can look back and see, well, okay, it's 1% now and it's been 1% vacancy rate for the last, I don't know, three years. 
But what's it done over a 20-year journey? Has there been some highs and lows? Has there been some oversupply at some stage where we might have higher vacancies? Has it crept up? Because usually when we talk about percentages, I surmise as 1% being about one week of vacancy a year. If it's up at 6%, it means six weeks of vacancy a year. That's too much from an investment point of view. It's too much to hold the, the mortgage through that period. So we want it to average out somewhere lower than 2% in an ideal world. So track that and see what it's done. If you've seen that it's 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 spiked to maybe four, five, six percent, then you it, it might not be a natural game changer, but we need to factor that into our holding costs as an investor. One thing you just sprang to mind, I'm not sure why it did while you were talking there, John, but I was just thinking about the fact that the floor space of an apartment is only so big. So to actually add value to it beyond, you know, the growth and making sure we're in a low vacancy area, like it's going to cost a lot less to paint a two-bedroom apartment than it is a three-bedroom house, you know? Like just Mm. there's a less surface area. You can have a greater impact Mm. by really small changes and modernising something that might have been built in the 80s that needs a bit of a refresh. Tend to find those apartment companies who flip apartments basically do quite well out of it because you can have a really great impact with really small changes. And from an investor point of view, what a great return than just relying on the the capital growth of the area. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the the other uh, positive is uh, you, you won't have to worry about land tax because uh, you, you're essentially, if there's if there's 50 in the unit complex, and we'll talk about the ideal number in a moment, but if there's 50 in the complex, you essentially own one fiftieth of the of the total land space, don't you? So you're never going to be impacted uh, as an investor for land tax if you're using it for investment purposes. Obviously, our owner OCK at the minute has no land tax associated to it, so you don't get charged land tax on your owner occupier home. It's just for investment. I think let's dive into. The, I want to go through like the block, what makes a great block and then what makes a great apartment yep. so that everyone has some key takeaways of what to look out for when they're house hunting and what to avoid. I think first cap off the rank for me in a, in a great block would be understanding the location of the block. Is it a main road address versus a side street? What is the amenity in the immediate 1K radius? And, you know, how does that produce an appeal to resale value, but also to prospective tenants that might want to rent your property? Yeah, it's a really important one. And and uh, your office, I walked to that the other day, uh, I got off at the wrong tram stop, I think, or Uber or whatever it was, but uh, <laughs> St Kilda Road is an extremely busy road, isn't it? So do we want to have a one bedroom apartment that's 55 square in a complex of 200 on St Kilda Road? The answer probably would be no. There's too many of them and you can easily Mm. find another one, you know, and you're constantly, when you go to sell it, you're constantly in battle with probably five or six others that are on market at the same time. Not ideal. Yeah. Okay. So busy road, a no-go zone as the ambulance rolls by. Um, (laughs) But what about... What about number in the complex? Like when we're buying units, ideally like four and six would be nice, all ground level or with a little bit of a spacious backyard sort of uh, <laughs> scenario. In an apartment block, what do you want the maximum to be? 
Well, there's sort of two categories to me. There's old versus new. So in older apartment blocks, which I'm talking pretty much anything pre-1990s, we're looking at ideally less than 12, like 12 and under, but sometimes you do get blocks that have two lots of 12, so there's 24, but they have separate entrances, so that. But then when we're looking at modern, boutique, the sort of definition of boutique tends to be 40 apartments and under. I would just go the less the better, like 20 and under, great. Less than 10, amazing. But we don't want to be up in the hundreds. No, and and – yeah, I think that's uh, that's a starting point, isn't it? And and generally, if you're under a hundred, <laughs> unfortunately, you're probably in a smaller complex than than a lot of others around you. And and the one you may be referencing on the Gold Coast before might have been up as high as two or three hundred. I don't know, but if uh, I think I know the developer, that's probably what would have been happening. So the prices are cheaper. And they're cheaper for a reason because there's there's too many in the complex and you're going to have all sorts of issues. Don't go in. It's not worth buying in a bigger complex like that, especially if it is on a busier street. Uh, there's just it's too many, and you'll have too many complications with demand. But also those wanting to sell out, those wanting to get a new tenant. There's just too many variables. Now another item on the block itself. I just want to address something around parking and stacker car parking. Because whenever we talk about apartments, whenever people go into apartments, they talk about stackers. And I go on a rant for days, but I won't. Um, Stackers aren't the devil. Understanding car stackers, and I'm talking about the... It's like a car lift. Some people might refer to it as a car lift, but you stack your car. Yeah, so let's explain this to people that have never heard of a stacker other than the old Holden Commodore that had a six-stacker CD (laughs) set in it. So you... In a lift point of view, when a human lift, you get on at ground floor and you go up to the level that you want to get into. With a car stacker point of view, what's the what's the difference? So car stackers are built to avoid having multiple basements. So the idea of a car stacker is they're dug out a level below and there's also a level above where you drive into it. So it gives the chance for more cars to be stored. It's a it's a method for car storage, basically. And people have issues with them because they get nervous of their car being taken off the ground floor and suspended up or going, going down the basement and they can't see it. Just YouTube car stacker and <laughs> you'll find it. I, 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 I missed a bit of that, but I think I got the gist. Okay, so I drive in. Mm-hmm. I press a button that says open up the door stacker, uh, the, the car stacker for me, please. I, I park my car and then I get out and go into the human lift up to my chosen floor that I live on. And when I come out of that lift, I then choose the, the number of the, the car park that I'm in and the car swings around to bring it to me. Is that right? Um, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shit. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Okay. Take okay. That. Let's <laughs> just – I think let's just tell people to YouTube car stacker and just how does a car stacker work? Don't YouTube car stacker fails because you won't buy a car stacker. But basically it's no. a mechanism used to store cars. The, d- the developers able to squeeze more apartments in as a result of building this car stacker, basically. Yes, and it keeps their site costs down because instead of building out a full second-level basement, they just dig out one row of a basement and they can store the cars. Now, a lot of people 
come and they go, I do not want to buy in a complex that has a stacker. And I always say, yeah. why? And they say, well, what if it gets stuck or what if it needs maintenance and all these things? The reality is the number of issues with car stackers is actually quite small. And I can say that based on my knowledge of the market, but also I have a car in a car stacker and it's all it is, is an extra 45 seconds. If my car has been elevated to the top level, it's an extra 45 seconds where I put a key into a machine. I turn it just like a garage door and it comes down for me to use. I think what I'm trying to get at is if you rule out apartment box with car stackers, you're going to be ruling out a lot of options when it comes to modern apartments and you could be giving up a great location, a great opportunity if that is your gripe with apartments. End of rant. Okay, all right. (laughs) So, yeah, lovely rant. Your rants aren't as vicious as Glenn's, by the way. So that's nice. It's it's a good, um, yeah. So at the end of the day, do your research from a stacker point of view, but we've conceptually got no problems with them. Yeah. They're a way of the future. Indeed. So moving on to the actual apartment itself, what makes it great? What position in the block should you be? There's arguments for and against ground floor and top floor. It depends on the appeal. For some people, they don't want ground floor for security reasons. They feel it's too easily accessed from the general public. It also can sometimes be a bit dark because you might have overhang of balconies above you. Top floor is personally my preference because I think the aspect's always great and there's no one above you, so there's no noise from anyone else. Yes. Um, what would you pick, John? Top Middle? Oh, look, I'd take the penthouse at the top for sure. It's it's the most spacious. Is uh, as you said, you've got the better views. There's no real downside to the to the top floor unless you're scared of heights and and obviously the price. Yeah, exactly. And look, anything in between, it's kind of is what it is. But ground floor appeal is usually for people who need space for a dog and they can't afford like a f- unit or a house, so they go with a ground floor apartment. It's typically the reason why. So I had a, a, a client that came to me and they had no less than 12 to 13 uh, apartments uh, in their in their portfolio. So obviously been investing for a while. Their yields uh, across the whole portfolio is pretty um, pretty comfortable. But we did a, an analysis or performance on his whole portfolio and basically I was there to say, look, keep this one, get rid of that one, et cetera, et cetera. And when we took a deep dive into this, um, various locations, but various sizes of apartments and levels on the actual apartment block, we came to realise that the internal size was the major difference between the growth and non-growth properties, right? So internal was like your three bedrooms were far superior in growth. It, it wasn't even necessarily the type of complex or how many's in it. It was actually the internal size, which was quite surprising to me. But yeah, I think the things that we're talking about today, if we can just keep an eye on all those things, we'll, we're likely to make a, a better investment choice over the long term. Just to touch on internal size for reference and some practical takeaways from today. For a one bedroom, as John alluded to earlier in the first half of the show, We don't want to buy a one-bedroom apartment that's under 50 square metres internally. That's for lending reasons, but also because you can't 
swing an animal in it. <laughs> she was so weird saying that, swing an animal, but you can't, you don't have enough room, yeah. basically. When it comes yeah. to two-bedroom apartments, I personally would say minimum 65 square metres internally, but ideally between 70 and 80 square metres is definitely getting, you know, a bit more spacious. And then three-bedroom... And would you, just on that, yeah. sorry, just before you go on to three-bed, would you like two bathrooms as well? So that if we're sharing, we can have a bathroom each and, and one would have the ensuite. Yes, but the next best to that would be uh, a separate toilet or an extra powder room of some sort. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Cool. And then three bedroom, yeah, you're looking like 100 square metres plus, really. You want a decent sized living to match the fact there's three bedrooms. So yeah, 100, 120 internal would be ideal. Yeah. Okay. So in summary, look at the builder developer, look at what they've uh, they've constructed previously and even get through them if you can and see the age of them and how quickly they might have aged. Look at the internal size, a massive one there is, is uh, how big is it internally in the layout. Emily, you spoke about the aspect of it. Um, the, the height, so we want to be on ground floor or top floor or middle floor. Uh, what we want to live in is going to be very different from what the general public might want as well. So depending on whether it's owner rock or investor, uh, look how busy the street is. Uh, do we want to be on a, a major freeway or a major highway, sorry, or do we want to be on a nice quiet street? And obviously the number in the complex, we we probably don't want to be in a complex of 300. We'd the, the smaller the complex, the better, but also looking at the body corporate in detail to say, right, how much am I paying? What's going to be the upkeep based on the amenities within that complex and, uh, and how is that managed? Are we continually spending money to improve the, the complex or are we just throwing money at it because there's all sorts of problems and issues and you can get that from the the uh, the what the strata notes basically the body corporate meet, minutes indeed that was a very efficient summary just in closing i think an important thing to note is that a lot of people are are told or they hear friends and family say oh i wouldn't buy an apartment why are you buying an apartment don't be afraid to challenge that and to stick on your own property journey an apartment might be the right thing for you and just cuz mum and dad didn't live in one or didn't buy one that doesn't mean you shouldn't i think it's a really common thing that we see particularly for millennials that their parents never owned apartments, so they think that their children shouldn't. Just be really aware that you need to suit your needs and educate yourself in the process. Hopefully this podcast helps you, but you know, additional resources to educate yourself on what's involved in an apartment purchase. I'm so glad to have uh, recorded this for a second time, Emily. I'm, uh, <laughs> it's just been, I think this is a better edition than the first one, to be oh, honest. Oh, yeah, we didn't actually announce in the beginning this is the second time recording this episode, <laughs> highly anticipated episode. I've been telling people it's coming out, actually, and, uh, yeah, it will be. <laughs> well, it has now. <laughs> Any case, uh, if you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, we, we thank you for your support. Hopefully you got something from this today. Uh, But until next time, we'll uh, talk soon. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Career, My Millennial Money, My Millennial Daily, and Retire Right. Find these wherever you get your podcasts.
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 